Welcome to Securing Digitalization, the Siemens Cybersecurity Podcast. the sound of movement, the sound of discovery, the sound of travel. Yes, rail travel. And Helen Negra, she's quite familiar with it. She is the cybersecurity officer for Siemens Mobility in the Americas. She's my guest today. Hi, Helen. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you today? Thank you. Doing very well as well. And um, yeah, this is a familiar sound to you. How often do you take the train? I take the train every time I have to go into the office. It is how I commute into the office. I also try to take the train whenever it's possible for local trips. I often prefer it to air travel. Uh, you don't have as much of a stress of the airport and all that. It's more relaxing and I'd say comfortable to travel by train. So it's a pretty regular part of my life. What's your commute like? From where do you go to where? I commute from Connecticut to New York City, so into Manhattan every day. I actually commute on two lines that are also customers of ours, so New York Mass Transit and Amtrak. Do you have examples of successful hacks of trains? There have been successful hacks on trains. In fact, the losses in dollars are estimated at billions of dollars every year on the impact to rail systems from cyber attacks. Most of those attacks happen at stations. They affect ticketing systems. They affect the actual interact of where money would transact. But we do have incidents where uh, the actual train have been impacted. I would say the most famous incident is when a Polish teenager derailed a tram after hacking the train network. And he did so by first hacking his TV remote control. And the TV remote control then was used to change track points. And that caused a derailment. Wait, help me with that. He hacked it or she hacked a TV remote control? Whose TV remote control? What does it have to do with the train? Their home TV remote control could be modified to impact a train track and the signaling system for that train track. That sounds like out of a film in the 1990s where you take your remote control and you press a few buttons and then, then a train derails. And that's exactly what the teenager did. Correct. And they weren't malicious. They were more curious as to what would happen and what they could do. Luckily, no one was killed, and there's more systems in place to prevent something like that from happening again. But it was definitely one of those moments in the industry that serves as a wake-up call, that something that everybody has in their home could cause a big issue. Going back to the teenager, you said motivation was curiosity, but then people who hack into stations, or what drives these people? What do they want? Typically, they're looking for financial gain in the train station point of view. Now, there are obviously more nation state actors or terrorist considerations that we also take into account in our risk workshops, where we say 
if somebody did have malicious intent, what is the worst that they could do and how can we prevent it? We run these workshops constantly. Currently, we are experiencing a war in this world in Ukraine. Are those cyber risks greater today than they were, say, a year ago? I would say, yes, the state of the future that wars are digital. There is a digital landscape. And one of those goals is to disrupt infrastructure, to make it internally bad enough where you have to focus your attention and your effort to restoring the works for your people and you can no longer engage in this war effort. So what I hear from you is even if bullets may be shot thousands of miles away from where I am, a rural railway station in, say, Kentucky or Bavaria or wherever in the world may be a target in a cyber war. Of course. Now, it is not as likely as your group looking for financial gain, but it is certainly a threat we consider. Often, it is a topic of conversation, and it is where building our partnerships with government agencies has really strengthened us, because we can get up-to-date information on what threats may be facing rail specifically, and we can go ahead and modify or fortify our systems to help keep our passengers as safe as possible. We believe in continuous improvement as an organization. So let's go back to the attack. As I remember one, we have that uh, curious teenager, we may have uh, a hacker who wants some money, we may have state actors, as you call them. What do you do about it? I hear you do workshops, you talk, but what specifically do you do to help customers keep their trains and systems safe? As part of our risk workshop activities, we evaluate the customer's individual risks for their projects, and we create a list of security requirements with the customer to ensure the highest level of security possible in each system. Wait a sec. So you, you, you sit down, you talk to them. Do you also like go to the rail track or do you try to hack into the system? How do you figure out what they lack and need? At the end of our process, before we release to a customer, there's something called a penetration test, which is a simulation of what a threat actor, a malicious actor would do. So would then we have our own good hackers. They would go and try to attack the system. There's a result. And then anything that they were able to successfully do, we make sure it is remediated. Okay, so in plain English, that means you become the hacker and you try to derail the train, not for real, but you try to show that it's possible if it is. Correct. And if there, or, or we try to not just derail the train, uh, maybe get private information or take some data, even if we can't modify it, releasing any data about those train systems is still something that we would like to protect. So we evaluate everything on confidentiality, integrity, and availability. Can we keep the data within that system secure and confidential? Can we ensure that that data is intact and not modified? And if somebody attempts to modify it, somebody is notified and that system is taken offline before that train can run. And then availability. Can we ensure that nothing can be done from a cyber perspective to take the train offline? Helen, hacking into a train system, is it fun? 
It is fun. It is, I would say, probably one of the most fun aspects of what you get to do because for the first time you're allowed to try to break something. And how often in your life do you get that opportunity? And you get paid for breaking things. Right. And you get paid to do it. And then, you know, of course, you have to fix what you broke. <laughs> I see. You can't delegate that part. Now, I'm still a bit surprised because my experience with trains is it's a lot of metal and there are a lot of mechanical parts and there's still workers all around who do a lot of jobs manually. How digital are our trains today, really? I understand that that picture in your head, that picture in my head of trains is the old time little kid train set locomotive that is 100% manual. I would say even when I think of the quintessential train, I think of something driven by coal. You don't necessarily think of trains as modern digital systems, but every year we increase the digital connectivity of trains. We have passenger entertainment systems. We have advertising. We have signaling systems, even systems that let people know, hey, this track is going to be offline for maintenance, so you can't route any trains there. Previously, those were manual processes, and now they are digital processes. So it sounds like it, we call it a brownfield industry as an infrastructure that already exists. It's not a greenfield where it builds something new, which means every year there will be a retrofit here, a new capability there, maybe a completely new train there. So more digitalization every year. Correct. Every year there is more digitization introduced into the environment. You just mentioned more digitalization every year, but then it seems to be different in different parts of the world. I'll give you an example. I often take fast trains in Germany or the Eurostar from London to Paris, and it's a very modern system. Just been to the US, take, for example, the East Coast, some of the trains or like the Amtrak, very, very mechanical indeed. Is it true that in the US, maybe it looks to me they're behind in terms of digitalization of trains? They're about, I'd say, 10 years behind our European counterparts. In, in that way, it's nice to have such a global company because we can look to see what our colleagues have done in other regions and take that as lessons learned into our products as we increase their, our connectivity and our digital landscape here. I wanted to learn more about these differences. And before our conversation, I spoke to Marta Garcia, and uh, she's a manager at the European Rail Supply Industry Association. Let's think about it from a like super practical perspective. Imagine I go by train from, say, Munich to Nuremberg. And you're based in Spain, you might go with the AVE, the Spanish high-speed rail system, uh, from, say, Madrid to Sevilla. And imagine the two railway companies that run these trips, they have completely different standards in cybersecurity. Where's the issue? Talking about cybersecurity, if I may, there are, let's say, three main fields. One side is the regulation. The other side is the standardization, and that could be applicable to the legislation. But also, we need to consider the threat landscape. And for that, uh, having different requirements in coming in a trip from uh, Barcelona to Germany uh, should be possible and should be more harmonized. 
Helen, we just heard, yes, Europe seems to be one step ahead. In the US, it's much more driven at the moment by what your customers ask you to do, not so much what the regulator asks you to do. What's on the wish list from your customers? What's the top three? Correct. And we are driven by our customers and their requirements. Right now, our customers would like increased connectivity safely. They have want to ensure that the privacy of their customers, their passengers, is taken care of. It has our most concern. And they want to make sure that there can be no safety concerns or no safety issues caused by security issues. And to that end, our legal landscape is changing as well. As a matter of fact, in December of 2021, we had our first legislation in this space from the TSA. So the Department of Homeland Security's Transportation Security Administration for the first time released security directives specifically for rail. That's Directive 158021. Okay, so it's slowly starting in the US as well. Regulation is also kicking in. Helen, the majority of folks with whom I speak for this podcast are men. How many women are there in cybersecurity roles, roughly in percent? Do you have a figure for that? Yes, so only seven to eight percent are women. This is a problem for a lot of reasons. Diverse teams have been shown to produce better results. They have more multifaceted thinking. They are more effective. And if we intend to outsmart all these threats, we need to have a broad spectrum of skills, people from a broad spectrum of backgrounds, nationalities, genders, lived experiences so that they can provide their perspective. The more perspectives we can provide, the more voices we can add to that conversation, the more complete picture we will have of our threats and also of how we can best improve our products. Can you give a real life example where diversity, different voices, different perspectives have helped you and the team to crack a problem more quickly? Any concrete example you can think of? So I would find that the diversity issue with problem solving comes into place in interesting ways when it comes to pen testing. So penetration test when you try to hack in. When you're trying to hack in, there are a lot of times when you're really caught in the technical solution. And uh, this was not train specifically related, but building related, where we had our typical hacker guys uh, that were trying to gain access to a building and uh, a new woman to a team who, you know, they were The guys were like picking locks and trying to see if they can clone a badge, you know, things like that. And then the woman in the team ended up gaining access and opening the doors for one of the men. And uh, they said, how did you do this? And she said, oh, I mentioned that I was here from... IT and I needed to fix somebody's computer and I had looked up really quick what that name was. And essentially, she had talked her way in. <laughs> so she talked her way physically into a building. And physically into a building in a way that nobody, you know, 
she asked and somebody opened the door for her. Then by then she got to the receptionist and she told the receptionist she was there to fix somebody's computer. The receptionist doesn't know IT, doesn't care particularly, let her back with a guest badge. So now she had access to the building sort of legally and it was uh, much faster than trying to pick a lock or clone a badge or doing these technical means of entry. So diversity also means diverse perspectives, different approaches, and sometimes they're more efficient, they're more effective than if we all think the same way. Correct, correct. But why then are there so few women in cybersecurity, less than 8% of the workforce? It's a multifaceted problem. Part of the issue is the lack of socializing on the variety and diversity of roles within the field. The thought of a cybersecurity role is you're going to work 80 hours a week. You're going to spend 75% of your time outside of work doing research to get new skills. And that's true for some roles. There's also the belief that you have to spend hours writing complex code. And that's true for some roles, but that's not true for all of them. We need people with those roles, with those skills for those roles, but we also need people even from non-technical backgrounds. So that's one part of the problem. Uh, the other part of the problem is the belief that, well, if there's no women or very few women, I don't want to be the first one. It's going to be hostile or what's the culture going to be like? And, and I will say there have been environments, not here at Siemens, but there have been environments that I have worked in where I've been the only woman and the first one and it's been quite hostile hostile in which way has it been hostile well for one position i had a six-hour technical interview like everybody else i passed this technical interview which one would assume means that i have passed the threshold to prove that i have skills to be in this group and uh, my first day Someone in leadership in this group told me that he would make my life miserable until I left. That person actually said to your face, I'll make your life miserable until you leave. Until you leave. Oh. That he didn't want me to change his group dynamics. That he didn't want me to join the team. And that he had been here much longer than I had and was more valuable to the group so he could do it. So what did you do then? Well, I told him that this was a nice way to say hello. I went to my desk and I had a thought to myself, okay, either you're going to leave and he'll do this to the next woman and the next one, or you're going to find a way to stay. And I made allies within that organization. And they were men in the organization that over time said, hey, one, Helen is a great woman. She's also very knowledgeable on her subject matter. And she is a great ally in our team. How did you turn them into allies? It depends. Um, with one person, they were an expert in a skill set that I needed help in. I you know, hadn't worked in very long. It wasn't technically 100% what I needed to do, but it, it was a skill that in the future I could see myself having to have. So I asked him, I said, hey, you know, I'm new to this org. I don't know that many people. I know that you're an expert in this. If I pay for lunch. Can we meet it over lunch and you can teach me what you know about this topic? And then I would be really grateful 
it would be fantastic and I can help on future projects that you have if you ever need it because then you'll have somebody else that understands this skill. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. We can meet a few lunches a week. And we did. And over time, not only did I gain that skill set, but I was able to teach him some of the skills I knew that he didn't have. And we became friends. Wow. I'm so overwhelmed by what you're sharing, by the hostility you describe. And when I think about how you turned around some of these folks one by one, it seems to me you didn't just have to be great at cybersecurity. You almost had to be on top of a psychologist and, if you will, a social engineer. Correct. And admittedly, some of my education background is in psychology. You have to read human body language and sort of understand where they're coming from. There's a lot of insecurity there, a lot of fear of change. And so with time, you can be the person that helps move that mountain and smooth that stone. And with time, I was able to hire other women into that group that were quite comfortable. And even that person that at my very first day told me he would make my life miserable. And we had a day where <laughs> he locked me out of my machines at work, changing my credentials. I hacked my way back in and then locked him out of his. We spent an entire day almost going back and forth in this manner. At the end of the day, I was like, we've got nothing done and I'm not going to fight you. Just don't interrupt my work. We went from there to at the end of the day when he left the organization, he said, I was great at what I did. It was amazing working with me. He wanted to stay in touch and he became an advocate for more women at his new role. It sounds to me you had so many jobs at the same time, proving yourself technically, also finding your way socially into being accepted, and three, being an advocate or even an activist for other women and other people who are underrepresented in Syria. That's a lot. Right. It is a lot, but I've definitely had my advocates along the way, and I'm grateful for them. And part of that also makes me want to advocate for others. So once you make your allies and they're out with a better understanding of what it means to be inclusive, then you can have them be the voice in their individual communities. And you can also explain what mentorship looks like. It's not just going out and saying this is a good thing. It's about reaching down and pulling somebody else up and making sure that you guys are working together to right the wrongs in the field as a whole. I also spoke about this topic with uh, Marta Garcia, but after we listen to her experiences, I'd love to get from you a couple of concrete suggestions for women and other underrepresented groups in cybersecurity. What are tips for folks who want to establish themselves or who wonder whether they should go into, into that line of work, that industry at all? But first of all, I want to hear more from Marta. Mata, there are still so few women in cybersecurity jobs. How can that change? Yes, uh, well, in fact, it is true. And, and also, we are lacking women in cybersecurity. We are lacking women in the rail sector, and we need to find a gender balance. You know, in UNIFE, we have a task force and trying to address this gender balance. I think in the rail sector, still, the female are not very, very much involved, or not at least in the top positions. However, in cybersecurity, it's only 7-8% of the total uh, workforce working in, uh, in the field. You say there is a task 
task force? What exactly are they doing to change it? There is a task force in UNIFE trying to gather the experience of the female working in UNIFE, but also with our members and try to involve more females. Because in the real sector, I think it's extremely important as users to have all the views, all the views of the users as a female, as a male. And I think we, we need to try to find, to reach the gender balance, to have different opinions, because that's how we enrich the sector. That was Marta Garcia. Now back with you, Helen. So what are your top tips for underrepresented groups that want to break through in cybersecurity or that don't even dare to approach the sector? What are your top tips? My first tip or mandate, really, if you are a member of one of these underrepresented groups and you have had success, if you are in a leadership position, if you have been involved in the industry for some time, please consider mentoring, consider speaking to girls and other BioPC, other people that are underrepresented and letting them know that there are tech careers for them, that they too are welcome. If you are an underrepresented person and you are looking to get into tech, one, we want you. We, you have a place here. But two, don't be afraid to look for your mentors, to look for your allies, to put yourself out there. And if there's hostility, don't be afraid to voice that, to say this is not okay, and to call people out even publicly on their behavior. It is the only way that people change. Over time, you can turn people into allies. So be your authentic self, find the people who align with your energy and who can be in a position to help. Join an organization. We have the uh, Women for Cyber Foundation. There's the Diana Initiative. There's Women of Cyber Jiu-Jitsu. There's Latinas in Tech. There are quite a few tech groups for underrepresented persons. Find a group. Those groups can often help you network. They can help you determine what to study. If you are in a classroom and you're the only person like you in your class, keep on going. Helen, and if any of the listeners would say, oh, wonderful, I want to talk to Helen, they will find you on LinkedIn, right? Would you consider replying? Oh, people can definitely reach out to me. I would be more than happy to talk to them. I love mentoring, so if I can help you on this path, it would be my honor to do so. Helen, thank you so much for your time. I've learned a ton. Thank you.